Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion, only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark, without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You've lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your god, which you made for yourselves. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, please keep your Bibles open. Let me pray for us. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, that you are a God who continues to speak to us today. We thank you for the words of Amos. Though they are hard to hear, we need to hear them. And so we pray that you'll continue to soften our hearts to receive your word as they really are, the words of life, the words from your mouth, we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to humbly heed your warnings, to listen carefully, that we might find ourselves on the right side of your judgment when Jesus returns. For we ask in his name. Amen. In April this year, Kim Stevens sued her former employer for unfair dismissal. She took her case to the Fair Work Commission and the outcome of her case was published last week. As you can imagine, no one likes to be fired, especially if you feel it was unwarranted and unfair. And so Kim was looking forward to the day her case would be heard. She thought it would be a day of vindication for her and a day of punishment for her former employers. Uh, in fact, she believed her case was a sure win, whole proof case that she even announced to her former colleagues that she'll be awarded ownership of the company. Well, that day has come. A couple of weeks ago, her case went before the Deputy President of Fair Work, Alan Coleman. And his ruling wasn't what she was expecting at all. Coleman said this about her dismissal. Her dismissal was a proportionate response to Miss Stevens' failure to address the company's concerns, not harsh, unjust, and unreasonable. The company was, in my opinion, very patient with Miss Stevens and afforded her ample opportunity to improve her timeliness. You see, Kim Stevens wasn't unfairly dismissed at all. She was fired for her frequent tardiness. She didn't go to work on time. In fact, she, on average, was 40 minutes late to work every morning. Yet despite repeated requests from her employer for her to turn up on time to change her behavior, she never did. Despite her employer's patience, it appears she made no effort to change. And so they let her go. 
The day of vindication for Miss Stevens ended up being a day of judgment for Miss Stevens. And in today's passage, the people of Israel were also longing for a day of judgment. Not when a fair work commissioner will see their case and hear their concerns, but when God will come to fulfill his purposes. For years, the Israelites had been at war with their neighbours. And even though there was relative peace during the time of Amos, the Assyrians to the north were amassing a massive army. They were increasingly becoming a threat, a potential problem for Israel. And so they were longing for the day of the Lord, the day when God will come and defeat his enemies to vindicate his people, the day when God will decisively act in the world and bring the fulfillment of his purposes. But just as Miss Stevens had the wrong expectations, so did Israel. Have a look at verse 18. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. Uh, this word from Amos was a declaration from God, and it would have been a complete shock to ancient Israel. The day will be a, the complete opposite of what they had expected. They expected that the day of the Lord will bring them salvation. But God is saying, no, it's going to bring you darkness, not light. They expected God to vindicate them, but God will judge them. They expected God to punish their enemies, but God will punish them. And the implication is that God is saying to Israel, you're my enemies. You're my enemies. When I come, I'm going to come and judge you. And so when the day of the Lord comes, there'll be no escape for them. Verse 19, it'll be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Imagine you're in the jungle. And you're alone in the jungle and you stumble across a lion and, and, and you see the lion and the lion sees you. You lock eyes. You're terrified. And so you start running, running for your life. And you get to the, uh, to, to the side of a waterfall. You can just imagine this Hollywood movie, can't you? You're at the side of a waterfall. What do you do? Do you jump? Or, or, or do you fight the lion? Well, you decide to jump, you risk it. You dive in and you belly flop. But that's okay because you survived the floor and the lion is not going to jump. You survived the chase from the lion. And so you, 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 you swim to the edge of the shore. And as you're scrambling to catch your breath, you notice a bear in the water. And the bear is, is hunting for food. And then the bear sees you because you're trying to get up and you're trying to escape and you accidentally fumble over some, some, some dry leaves and the bear hears you, sees you, you lock eyes with the bear. And you're terrified and the bear's hungry, salivating, thinking, wow, better than a fish. And so the bear's chasing you and you're running for your life and, and, and you manage to escape and, and, and find your cabin, close the door shut, you're safe, you think. What a miracle. You, you, you've just run from a lion and a bear. What a story to tell your friends. And so as you're panting, as you're catching your breath and you're pulling yourself up from the wall, a snake bites you. You see, Amos is saying that justice will prevail. There is no escape from God's judgment. You can't run, you can't hide 
For the judgment of God will catch up to you. Verse 20, will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch black without a ray of brightness? I'm not sure if you've ever been in a room so dark without light. It's scary. We're so used to light. Even when we turn off the lights in our house, you, you still get light from the streets. You still get the beam of light that's reflected from the moon. But when you're in pitch black, in total darkness, it's frightening. When you can't even see the hand in front of your face, it's frightening. And that is going to be like that. It's going to be like that for Israel when the day of the Lord arrives, when the judgment of God is poured on them. There'll be no escape. It's going to be terrifying. But you might be wondering, well, why, why would the day of the Lord not be a day of vindication for the, for the Israelites? Why would there not be light for them? Why, why is there judgment and darkness? Aren't they the people of God? Doesn't the blood of Abraham run through their veins? Don't they have the promises that God gave them? Don't they have the law of Moses? Well, of course they do, don't they? They're Israelites, they're descendants of Abraham. They have the promises of God. They're meant to be a holy people and a, and a light to the nations. But as we've seen in the previous chapters, ancient Israel was full of immorality. Their, their religion was full of depravity. They bribed judges and denied the poor justice. They went to worship God in Bethel and not in Jerusalem. Even though they weren't meant to be the holy people of God, they were anything but holy. They were meant to be light, but all they emitted was darkness. They took God for granted and assumed that they could live the life they want and worship the way they want and be exempt from the wrath of God and the judgment of God. They became complacent and assumed that they were in God's good books because the blood of Abraham ran through their veins. When in fact they couldn't be further from the truth. They might have been very religious, very devout, but God hated God hated their religion and won't even listen to their music. Verse 21, God uses very strong language. And listen to, to the I in this. I hate, God says. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. Can you imagine God saying those words to ancient Israel and how terrifying that would have been for them? Well, what do you mean, God? Look at all we've done for you. Look at all we've offered to you. How could you say you hate what we do? How can you say you won't accept our offerings? Why will you turn a deaf ear to our music? We've spent hours rehearsing and practicing. Can you imagine God saying that to us? I hate your church services and I despise your gatherings. I will not accept your electronic transfers and I will not listen to your music and singing. 
What would make God say such a thing? I mean, after all, we're a Bible-based church. Don't we pray before the service? Surely God will never say such a thing to us here in Camberwell. Well, God willing, he never will. As long as we heed the warning of Amos and learn from ancient Israel. You see, they may have given God the first fruits of their harvest and sang the most beautiful tune, but their worship was revolting to God because they lived immoral lives. Their worship was revolting to God because they lived immoral lives. Verse 24, But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. That was the heart of the issue for ancient Israel. Have you ever heard of uh, James, uh, James Henry Hammond? Uh, Hammond had a distinguished career in politics in, the, in America in the 1800s. At one point he was a Democratic congressman, then governor of South Carolina, and even a senator in the United States. But he wasn't just known as a lawmaker, he was a plantation owner. With 22 square miles of land, he didn't grow cotton all by himself. He owned more than 300 slaves who worked for him, but, but he had slaves not to just till his land. He had slaves for another, another purpose. In 1839, he purchased 18-year-old Sally to be his concubine. He had many children by her, and he even bought Sally's daughter, Louisa. And when she turned 12 years old, he had many children by her too. But unfortunately, that wasn't enough for Hammond. He also abused his sister's four daughters, his own nieces. And so when his brother-in-law found out, he threatened to go public. Eventually, Hammond's wife left him. Many of his livestock died as a result of disease. Whichever way he looked, his world was falling apart. And at this point, you'd think that Hammond would reflect on his own life. to make amends, to repent, to seek forgiveness. But this is what he journaled. It crushes me to the earth to see everything of mine so blasted around me. Negroes, cattle, mules, hogs, everything that has life around me seems to labor under some fatal malediction. Great God, what have I done? Never was a man so cursed. What have I done or omitted to do to deserve this fate? You see, Hammond was a very religious man, a man who would call himself Christian, a man who lived for God and served God in the public eye. And so he didn't understand why these things were happening, why he was suffering, why his wife would leave him. You see, Hammond was so self-deceived. He thought he could be a sexual predator and abuse his power, he thought he could be a lawmaker and deny the people the law and turn to God and say, why? What have I done wrong? Why am I suffering? And in a similar way, as we've seen over the past few weeks, the Israelites didn't just oppress the poor, they sold their own people into slavery. They bribed judges 
to deny the poor justice. Yet they thought the day of the Lord was a day of salvation for them. A day not of judgment, but a day of joy and glory. Not a day of punishment and shame. Where their sins will be laid before the courtroom of God for all to see. But friends, it's easy for us, isn't it, to look at James Hammond and be disgusted and think to ourselves, how could he be so blind? We could so easily look at ancient Israel and be shocked by what they did and think to ourselves, how could they be so blind? But before we point to the plank in their eyes, what about the log in our own eye? You see, the problem with ancient Israel and with Haman is the same problem with the Pharisees and potentially with us. In Matthew 23, Jesus speaking to the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the leaders of God's people of that time. He says in 23, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, men, dill, cumin. That is, they were so devout, so religious, they were so precise to make sure that they obeyed the law to a T. They would count every single thing to make sure that they gave God a tenth as, as was required by the law. They were very religious, very devout, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, Jesus says to them, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Yes, you should have practiced the latter. You should people who, who honor God by upholding justice, by showing mercy, by being faithful. You should have been doing all these things without neglecting the former, without neglecting the law, without not obeying the law. You see, God wants justice to flow like a river as he did in the time of Amos, as he did in the time of Jesus. God wants justice to flow like a river as blood flows through our veins. For just as justice and mercy and righteousness forms part of the DNA of God, so it must be in the DNA of his people. Now some people misunderstand this warning and fall into the trap of thinking, well, what God is saying here, what Jesus is saying here, what the warning is, is that Christians must be uh, on about social justice. That's ultimately what God wants, what matters most to God. And so they would argue that our time and energy must be spent not in preaching Jesus, but in helping the poor, not in proclaiming the gospel, but in fighting on behalf of asylum seekers. But that's to miss the point of the passage completely. Social justice is important. It's a great thing to do, but it's not the most important thing. For it's not social justice that God's primarily interested in. For justice and righteousness that flows out of a right relationship with God. That should be marked in the life of every Christian. That's why Amos asked Israel in verse 25, did, did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? And the rhetorical question here expects us to say, no. But the reality is that they did offer sacrifices in the wilderness after God saved them from slavery in Egypt, after God gave them the law through Moses on Mount Sinai, 
after they wandered and during the wandering of the wilderness of 40 years before they came to the land of Canaan. Yes, they did offer sacrifices. We know that from Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. So, so what's, what's Amos getting at? What's he trying to say? Well, his point is that the sacrifices they made and the offerings they gave weren't made so that they could become the people of God. They were already the people of God. And so the sacrifices and offerings they gave to God was in the context of a relationship with God. A response to God's grace. Not a way to win God's favor. You see, if you make sacrifices to God to get into his good books, then you've missed the point. Your sacrifices and offerings can be only acceptable to God if you're already in a right relationship with God. And that's a warning for us, isn't it? You see, we might not be in the slave trading business and have never bribed anyone except maybe a police officer in Malaysia. But if we live immoral, unrepentant lives, no matter how regular we're at church or generous we're with our money, no matter how sacrificial we are with our time and devoted we are to prayer, our worship will be as revolting to God as it was with ancient Israel and Hammond. We can't bribe God with our sacrifices. We can't ask God to turn a blind eye to our sins with our offerings. If we truly believe the gospel, then we won't try to excuse our sins. We'll repent of our sins. We won't try to bribe God with our good deeds. We'll seek forgiveness from God. And so that all we do... All we do is in response to the grace of God, not in an attempt to win God's favor. Everything we do must be in response to God's grace and not in order to win his favor. But that's not what ancient Israel was interested in doing. They were happy to oppress the poor from Monday, from Sunday to Friday and offer a sacrifice to make up for the injustice they've caused on the Saturday. They were happy to deny the poor justice and to make up for it by offering some sacrifices to God in the hope that he might turn a blind eye to it. And so God will punish them. He will put an end to their hypocrisy. They will worship the pagan gods of Assyria, and go into exile, into Assyria. Verse 26, you have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore I will send you into, the ex into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. The Israelites thought that the day of the Lord was going to be a great day of salvation. But Amos tells them that it's going to be a terrifying day of judgment. And friends, the day of the Lord is still coming. And that day will be the day that Jesus returns to bring about the fulfillment of God's purposes forever. And it will either be a glorious day or a terrible day for us. 
In Islam, Muslims believe that at the end of the world, Allah, their God, is going to weigh up their good deeds and their bad deeds on a scale. And if their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, then they're in Allah's good books. They're going to be okay. But if their bad deeds outweigh their good deeds, then that's not going to be so good. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people have that same perception of Christianity. That good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. That if you've done enough good, then God's going to be pleased with you and you'll get to enjoy heaven forever. And so if I go to church X amount of times a year, but at least Easter and Christmas, and give once in a while to charity and express some form of generosity, if I'm a nice person for most of the year and pray to God once in a while, then God will see that I've tried, that I'm a good person at heart. I haven't murdered, I haven't killed, I haven't raped, I haven't done all these horrible crimes. And so surely God will accept me as I am. But that's not what the Bible teaches at all. And that's not what's going to happen when Jesus returns at all. Good people don't go to heaven. Bad people don't go to hell. I'm sure the ancient Israelites were nice people and we would have gotten along fine with them. But at the end of the day, Christianity isn't about being good and nice, being religious and devout. But it's about our relationship with Jesus. Is he someone we know and love, that we obey and trust? That's why one of the most terrifying passages in the Bible, I think, is in Matthew chapter 7. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as he concludes his sermon, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Doesn't that terrify you? We could consider ourselves Christian all our lives and not know Jesus as our personal Lord and Saviour. We could serve the church sacrificially all our lives and Jesus could say to us, away from me, you evildoers. Because being a Christian isn't being a good person. It isn't doing religious things to get into God's good books. It's not what we can do for Jesus. Jesus, we prophesied in your name. Jesus, we, we did this and did that. We even performed miracles in your name. Surely you'd be pleased with us. Surely you'd accept us. Surely we're a good person. But Jesus will say to us, if we say that to Jesus, away from me, you evildoers. Jesus can't be more blunt than that. 
You see, friends, as Christians, we must not think what we can do for God. We must always remember what God has done for us in Jesus. And so, friends, let's not become complacent and assume we're nice and good Christians and that God will accept us as we are on the day that Jesus returns, on the day of the Lord. Let's heed the warnings of Amos, who gave his word of declaration from God to ancient Israel. Let's not take God's grace for granted. Let's keep being honest with each other and honest with ourselves. Let's not fall into Haman's trap. Let's repent of our sins to love what God loves and hate what God hates. What God loves, we will love. What God hates, we will hate. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, let, let's not do it as routine, as an obligation, as a ticking the box. As we take the Lord's Supper this morning, let it remind us afresh. With repentant hearts filled with thankfulness, as we remember Jesus' body broken for us, his blood spilt for us, so that we might enter into a relationship with him, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates, to conform into the likeness of God. Amen.